At Cool Air Products, we developed AC Smart Seal Quick Shot with professionals in mind. It's the only product on the market that's three in one with sealant, lubricant, and UV dye all in a single application. It's non-toxic, non-flammable, 100% safe to the touch, eco-friendly, and compatible with all refrigerants. It's a safe solution option, backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the podcast. So this one here is a dually. What I mean by that is I recorded a podcast with the boys from the Advanced Refrigeration Podcast, Brett Wetzel and Kevin Compass. And basically, the episode went out on their podcast, and it's going out on mine. And we talked about a ton of different things. It was just kind of a free-flowing conversation. We talked about superheat. We talked about oil separation. We talked about the part shortage in the industry and how it's affecting the industry like in their niche and in my niche as well so overall it's a really good podcast and guys if you don't like the f-bomb being dropped (laughs) uh brett drops the f-bomb quite a bit in this i'm just giving you a heads up i don't care and i'm hoping you don't because that's just him being him and, and it's real right it's a real conversation anyway guys let's get to this this is the hvac know it all podcast i'm your host Gary McCready. This podcast is sponsored by Master, and one of the things they carry that I think every residential job should have an option of is putting in a proper filter cabinet. They carry the general air ones. Now, a proper filter cabinet, what that does is it reduces any particulate bypass that can go around the filter, above it, under it, around it. And you know where that stuff lands, right? It lands on coils and secondary heat exchangers and clogs up uh, your tubing of your condensate. So every residential job should have one of these as an option, in my opinion, because they provide better filtration and better airflow. Check out master.ca. This podcast is sponsored by Cintas. And one of the things they're doing well is supplying solutions for blue collar uniforms, blue collar trades. HVAC, electrician, refrigeration, plumbing, you name it, they got uniform solutions. They got a bunch of different products and it's really up to the management and the company and even involve your techs in the selection. I think that's really important. If you head over to Cintas.com forward slash HVAC know it all, you can check out what they've got to offer for your group or your techs in the field. Welcome to the HVAC know it all podcast. Recorded from a basement somewhere in Toronto, Canada. Your host and HVAC tech, Gary McCready, will take you on a deep dive into the industry discussing all things HVAC. From storytelling to technical discussion. Enjoy Going the show. From like old 1992 RMCCs to basically Dan Foss 800 days. So RMCCs, Gary, just so you're aware, are um, basically are old, older CPC controllers. And then he's switching over to something that kind of looks like this. Okay. And that is to control what exactly? Is that to control an entire system, part of a system? Yeah, it basically controls everything in the entire store. So it controls yeah. everything from the compressors, the fans, to the um, some of them, the heat, the cooling controls basically everything it's like the whole like brains of the store it's basically running an io network meaning like it has uh separate boards that it's can it, that it's slave commanding 
to do whatever task it needs, whether it be defrost, refrigeration, yeah. uh, whether it be turning fans on and off. Are you so, doing Are you doing the lights and shit? Are you doing the lights and all the HVAC with the Danfoss? Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> wow. So you're so we we used to do controls too, like at the company I used to work at. That was reliable controls. It wasn't refrigeration though. It was for basically HVAC stuff. But we wouldn't get into controlling lights. So you guys are controlling lights in the supermarket well as well with that stuff. Yeah. Typically, the way it works is we we control it over uh, two methods, right? We'll have a set schedule. So let's just say the lights are scheduled to turn off at, I don't know, fucking 7, 7 a.m., but there'll also be a backup in there where it'll go off a a photo cell. So if the photo cell senses a certain foot candles, it'll actually shut off the lights before the time. And the same thing with with it turning on the lights. Like the light schedule might be on, we're going to turn it on at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock, but then we're not, we're, we're, both those statements have to be true. So the schedule has to be true, but also the cut out for the light or the cut on for the lights also has to be on. So like, once it gets down to about what we usually set them for 20, 25 foot candles kept yeah, for, that. for, for a cutout. So basically when it gets, you know, you know when it gets that dark, because when you have a, if you shine a light on a photo cell, it'll, it'll show freaking 800 foot candles right like if you just take a flashlight to it but if you cover up with these tapes you go back down to zero but usually about 20 20 to 25 foot candles is usually where we knock knock shit off or turn turn the lights back on i'm sorry yeah so that yeah this is way more in depth than i would ever get into refrigeration because i don't do supermarket racks none of that i've done pharmaceutical stuff smaller applications and the biggest controller i've seen or the most complicated one i've worked with is the t honeywell t775 which i like but i mean that's to the extent of controls that i get into with refrigeration so this is wait a minute is that is that that big that big gray box with the red screen and has a couple correct yeah yeah okay yeah we deal with them on the blood banks yeah you can control it boilers with those pretty much anything you want but there's been a lot of uh, pharmaceutical applications where they've chose to to throw those onto the uh, into the control box type thing, right? Yeah, and that's that's yeah. what Kevin that's what Kevin basically does. He's that and a firefighter, right? Yeah, I guess I, I would like this store to catch on fire. <laughs> sure, I'm sure we've all got customers we feel that way about Kevin. Oh, this may be like one of the worst stores we have. They're like, they're, they're having uh, Gary. They're having to put on uh, VFD drives on condensers that are how old, Kev? Not at this store, but there was another store that was almost thirty years old. It was one of them. I think it's going to get stopped. But th- this store, they, I mean, we're doing drives at this store, and their sprinklers are on at fifty degrees. It's <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> Do you mind so, if yeah. I ask you? Do you mind if I ask you guys something along the lines of uh, low temp refrigeration? Sure. So this is pertaining to heat, uh, superheat, because Brett, you brought up superheat earlier when we were talking uh, before you hit record, and some of the stuff I used to take care of was: um, Would you consider minus forty degrees Celsius low temperature, low temperature application? Yes. So my, minus 40 C and F line up together. So it, it doesn't really matter. So here, here's the weird thing. So if you look at a Sporlin um, powerhead chart, right? Um, negative 40, I think, is the is the end mark for a for a Z charge. Mm-hmm. You know, because you have different charges, right? You have the, uh, the C is commercial, which is, I think, 50 to uh, negative 10. 
Then you have GA, which is general application, which is like, you know, chillers and, and, and air conditioners and shit like that. Then you have Z charge, which is zero to negative 40, but then you have X charge, which is extremely low charge, which goes from negative 50 to 100. So it's like, it's like kind of borderline, um, like what it's actually considered. But I mean, typically like on the blood banks and stuff that, I, that I've serviced, they usually typically have Z charges on there. So it's considered just regular low temp. Yeah. And this was blood plasma that they were storing in mm -hmm. these freezers, right? Mm -hmm. And it was for pharmaceutical purposes. And what I wanted to ask you about was the superheat that you would see at the compressor on a system that runs that low, um, that, that, that low of a box temperature. Because there was a couple I would work on that were side by side on the roof and when they were working normally, we were getting anywhere between 60, 65 degrees of superheat at the compressor from, from like all the way up the piping outside a bit and right at the compressor. And these things would run, they would cycle, they would hit set point. Are you guys seeing high superheats on low temperature applications with longer pipe runs like that? How long are you talking? Um, I'm talking like 50, 60 feet maybe uh, maybe 75 feet hmm kev what do you think man i like i mean i like i because usually on low temp it's weird so like like on any low temp thing i usually say see three to five but like if you talk to some of these the guys that run the blood banks they'll they'll say that they want like a six to eight degree of superheat which you know i mean if you're getting 65 back at the pump dude i i'd think That's that you're insulin your ins dude, your insulation is, is is messed up, or your superheat is way too high. What do you think, Kev? I mean, to get sixty five degrees at the, at the compressor, not not evaporator, at the compressor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even that, like, I mean, sixty feet of line is not that much. So I mean, it's it shouldn't heat up that much unless unless the armo is just like completely toasted. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't like. I mean, we work on we work on uh, you know bakery boxes that are all the way in the hell in the front, mm -hmm. right? That are you know um, like 200, 250 feet away, and you know you set that thing to three to five degrees of superheat, you're getting you know maybe ten, maybe fifteen degrees back at the rack. Yeah. So I I don't. That seems awful high. Yeah. Well, um, it, they they were running. Both of them were were set up the exact same way, and they both ran. Uh, by the like they were redundant systems right it was one box two systems redundant of each other either one could run and maintain the box and both were running the exact same way and they and for for maybe i left the company back in in may but maybe for 10 years at that point yeah yeah huh i mean that, that just seems awfully high you know what i it's mean a, no it, it's high to me too very high. Well, typically, like what you know, Copeland. If you look at a Copeland guide, depending on what compressor you're looking at, typically you have about 20 degrees of superheat at the compressor, right? That's minimum. That's to make sure you don't, you know, get any any flood back, you know, going to that compressor, any rich, rich kind of superheat. Um, and then there's usually a max temperature of 65. You know what I mean? So, like on air, think about air conditioning, right? That's something you're real comfortable with. So you typically run anywhere from a 38 to a 40 degree saturated, right? Mm-hmm. And if you get 20 degrees on top of that, you're looking at 60 degrees, right? Which is about what your suction line temperature is going to be at your, at your condensing unit, right? Mm -hmm. So even at a real high load where it's real, real hot that day, you might have like 42 or 43, which still brings you underneath that 65 degree 
line temperature coming back because otherwise you're going to work outside the operating envelope and that compressor is going to overheat and either the module is going to open up in the compressor or the three phase is going to grenade oh yeah i i totally agree but it i just found it bizarre both of these systems ran that way and they ran like this for years the the suction line was still ice up i mean we we're running at i think it was 404a and we we're running at uh geez i i don't have a pt chart in front of me but i mean we're running down at like six seven psi on the suction side which is like negative negative 40. Mm -hmm. it's like right about negative 40. so if you're well if you're running 32 degrees i mean that's that's 72 degrees of superheat right, right. like because ice ice that you know you have to in order to have ice that's to be at 32 degrees right yeah that's, that's right yeah yeah so the armoflex is just like full of water and ice and it's it just could it could be it could be, it, you, you might be right on that, Kevin. It might be just filled with a lot of water because as it was going up, um, once in a while, they complain about drips coming down below the piping and there was no way to get at it unless you got a specialized genie boom in there because it was going up against the back of a bunch of boxes that were lined up um, together. And there was really no way to get back up there without a special genie boom. But But since it was running, it was maintaining, all the alarms were um, kept in check it wasn't really a, an issue for for the for the facility at that point but i just thought it was interesting and these compressors were scrolls and they were outfitted with um liquid injection um there was like a it was like a, a mechanic mechanical it was a mechanical device right and it had like a there was a well in the compressor and it was um it was there was a temperature probe that went into the well connected to a mechanical device that would it, liquid inject into the the scroll compressor yep yeah, yeah. It's, those are those are called a DTC valve um, mm -hmm. discharge temperature control. I think maybe what it's called. Um, but essentially, on that on that particular one that you're talking about, that goes directly in the top of the head. Um, yeah. You have to be really careful with those because a lot of times, you know, people will change compressors. They'll grab them on with a with a with a with a, a channel locks or whatever. When they do that, they basically crush the ball. If they crush the ball, what's going to happen? It's going to push that push that valve a little bit farther open, right? And then cause that thing to feed when it's not supposed to, and then it, mm -hmm. it ends up grenading the compressor because yeah. the thing thinks it's hot, but it's yeah. not. And then you're just basically forcing that valve open. So if there is any liquid in that line, it's literally turning it on on a liquid start. Yeah. No. Good point. No. Very good point. Um, so that that's really my extent of refrigeration is small pharmaceutical applications that stored. I mean, the you could have a walk-in box that was. 20 by 15 or 15 by 10 or something small and you could have five million dollars worth of product in there so and these things weren't very they, the, the equipment wasn't very big right we're talking about small equipment here to keep these things cool because we're not talking a large amount of product we're just talking about very expensive product so it was really weird living it was kind of like being in the supermarket realm a little bit but we didn't get nearly as many calls as, as a supermarket would because i have a friend in the supermarket and every time he's on call he's gone all weekend every single time kev you you, you run service only when it gets slow right well i mean pretty much every day after i'm done with my eight hours i pretty much run service yeah so i mean yeah i mean there's there's always calls i mean there's i think we're backlogged for like two months probably and it's it's almost february the the parts thing is killing us like as far as getting calls closed and stuff like that i i don't know i mean you do predominantly residential correct residential like commercial correct here 
Um, I've been doing a lot of residential lately just because I started my own one man show and that's where the cash flow is right now. Yeah. But I, I've been I've been teetering between residential and uh commercial over the last eight months or so. Gotcha. And yeah, the parts thing is the parts thing has gotten everybody. I think the supply chain has failed a lot of people. And I it's just something we have to deal with. There's a lot of room for universal type parts these days if or aftermarket parts if they're available to use because the OEM hasn't like carrier for example there's some parts for carrier rooftop equipment that's been on back order for over a year right <laughs> like what do you do what do you do at that point if if it if the part has actually failed i mean you have to come up with some other way to provide the customer with some sort of air whether it's heating or cooling right it doesn't matter what part of the industry you're in if you're missing a part in refrigeration for a rack or a grocery store and that oems on back order what do you do? Like, how do you guys deal with that? I should ask you that question. Some codes, ladies and gentlemen, to help save you a little bit of dough if you're ordering tools in the U.S. at TrueTech Tools. Promo code is KNOWITALL. Okay, that's going to save you 8% on your purchase for most of the things in the store. So check out TrueTech Tools and save some money with promo code KNOWITALL. The other one we're going to talk about here is emotorsdirect.ca. EMotorsDirect.ca is basically a motor and accessory shop that's online. You can place your order and get it delivered to your site, your home, wherever you need it to be. And you're going to save 8% there too using code HVACKNOWITALL at EMotorsDirect.ca. So Yellow Jacket has come out with their own combustion analyzer. It's very compact. It's very nifty. I haven't tested it yet, but I just like how compact it is. It's got its own printer in the manual. It actually has a kind of a, like a cheat sheet that I posted online that tells you what a furnace should be, a boiler, so on and so forth, should be in generalized terms when it comes to combustion analysis. So that's a pretty handy thing to have too. So check out Yellow Jacket's new combustion analyzer. I mean, a lot of uh, MacGyvering and hoarding, <clears throat> a lot, a lot of hoarding, like, I, I mean, my entire office is full of like spare parts and used parts and, you know, stuff we take off. It's like, mm, that's good. I'm going to keep it like a lot. There's a lot of that. I mean, I mean, other than that, like we have just gotten absolutely hosed by like the supply chain stuff, like for like construction stuff, cases. I mean, there's times where we're, we're waiting weeks for cases to show up. They're supposed to show up. They don't show up. Well, now it's costing us a ton of money. And then when they do show up, it's like, uh oh, now they're overlapping four other jobs. And uh, now we're back again. Well, not just that, Kev. Well, you told me like there was stuff coming in without stuff. Like, oh, yeah. Like cases half put together, racks with components missing. Like, I'm waiting on VFDs for a store we finished a year ago still. Wow. The evaporator. Has shipped them twice now the wrong voltage. Evaporators <laughs> coming in without actual fans or fan guards. Yeah. You know, so they'll hang them, right? Because they, you know, the, the construction job ha has a certain set that has to go first, right? Yeah. Box gets built, you know, coils get hung, then they get piped. Shit gets piped, shit, you know, shit's all ready to go. It's like, well, can't start it up. Well, why not? No fan blades. Well, why not? They're on back order. What do you do? Yeah, so is that so do they give you guys a heads up that it's coming with no fan blades or does it just no. show up that way? 90% of the time it just shows up that way. 
Like yeah. no, no, no warning. It's just like, no, we better not tell them because they're gonna get mad. <laughs> tell them. Didn't you say there was a fucking IOU? <laughs> There's IOU inside all these cases, like IOU sixty four shelf clips, like this, this. I'm like, it's like this this controller. It's okay. At least, at, at least with like residential, I don't think you get any condensing units. So hey, we're missing a board. We'll get you back next week. <laughs> Man, I the the IOU thing just you just hit a. You just hit home with me on that. When I was a kid, and I used to get paycheck paychecks. I'm going to tell you, this is this is not work related at all, but it was just funny. I I forgot my check, and I was going out with my buddies, and I forgot my check at home. <laughs> so, and I used to put it in the bank machine, and it was spit the cash out after. So I, I wrote an IOU for the amount of my check on the paper, and I put it <laughs> into the bank, and I took the money out anyway. Right? <laughs> it was they, they went on a trust level back then. And uh, my bank account, my bank account got suspended for like a week after that. So, um, yeah, it don't don't do that, folks. <laughs> that sounds like a Canadian thing. Yeah, they're gonna trust yeah. you for a week. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, I was gonna put the money in when when I when I got my check, and I, but I needed the money right there and then. Anyway, yeah, it's 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 pretty bad. Like, I mean, missing parts, wrong parts, half put together parts, components. Just you know, yeah. Missing components, half-ass components. I mean, everything's gotten cheaper too. The longevity of some of the equipment is is just not there anymore. And like, the, and, and a lot of it's the if you really think about it, it's the Department of Energy because they'll put stipulations. Like, so I know you guys are probably definitely dealing with this up there in Canada, where it's you know they they, they say it has to be uh you know you has to save this much energy, right? So they'll oversize units and then, you know, they'll run the head pressure all the way down. And then basically the condenser is now the compressor is way oversized. So it brings the suction pressure all the way down. And then it ends up causing failures because the suction pressure is too low. And it's just, it's an ongoing cycle. Well, it's supposed to run. Well, it's, it's oversized now. So you have to kind of manipulate the numbers in order to get it to function right. Interesting. It's, yeah, it's 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 a numbers game. It's it's, um, you know, because if you like, think about it, if you if you have a con condensing unit that's running at 120 degrees saturated, right, and you mm -hmm. jump that thing down where you lower the head pressure all the way down to 75 degrees saturated, that compressor now has increased capacity by anywhere from 25 to 35 percent. Okay, mm -hmm. so now that compressor is way bigger. So what's going to happen to your suction pressure? Are you asking and, me? Yeah, I'm asking. Oh, so, sorry. I, I didn't know you were asking me. Sorry. No, man. you're fine. You're fine. No, no, no. Go on. Go on. Ex explain because I'm so, just, I'm just absorbing this. No, you're fine. So, so if you have a compressor that's bigger than what it's supposed to be, yeah. what's going to happen? Your suction pressure is going to be lower, right? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the way the way things are sized, right? They usually go off the TD, the temperature difference between the saturated versus your discharge temperature. So, yeah. most of the time, when engineers size shit, they, they'll size it for a 10 degree TD. So what'll happen is um, if it's sized for a 10 degree TV and it's a one ton coil, you're gonna need a one ton evaporator. But now if we're running a bigger compressor where our suction pressure is gonna be lower, now our compressor is way bigger, which means our suction pressure is lower, which means now our TD is higher. Well, when you increase the TD, so if you go from 10 degrees to 20 degrees, now the actual evaporator coil is not sized for a one ton, now it's actually sized for a two ton. So, you know, we have units out there that are supposed to be running you know, a six to eight degrees of superheat, but they can't do it because the TV is so high. So now the evaporator looks way fucking bigger 
Um, but the expansion valve stays the same size. So you're running like 30 degrees of superheat on something that's supposed to be running six to eight just because of the way the engineering rolls. So if you were to like, you know, example, like in residential, if you were not running a 38 degree saturated coil, right, you run it all the way down to fucking 20 degrees, um, that coil is now increased size. So technically you would need a bigger piston or bigger expansion valve. Um, and so what happens is you end up causing, you know, ice ups and shit like that. And now you have to explain to the customer why this doesn't work. And sometimes it's just like, hey, that's the way it was designed. And there's nothing I can do about it, you know, where they should have did something to control the suction pressure or have some sort of, you know, vapor injection to, to raise the pressure. Because otherwise it's not going to function right. Now you're saying the suction in this scenario, the suction pressure is lowered. Now, is that causing any problems with your oil return? Or are you, no? You're still getting the same pull. Okay. You're still, you're still getting the same pull. You're still, you know, you're still actually in, in, in all reality, you're getting a higher velocity. And a lot of the systems we work on have oil separators anyway. I was going to ask you that as well. Would it matter since you've got an oil separator on the system anyway? Yeah, for, for the moment, yeah, you're still running the same velocity, if not even a little bit more. And, you know, as long as you have, because um, there's three types of se separators that we deal with, uh, helical, um, coalescing, and uh, impingement screen. And the only one that's really uh, volume-based is the is the, the centrifugal. Um, so as long as you have, like, a coalescing or, or, or a impingement screen, it should separate it no matter what velocity that you pull at. Um Typically, you know, Kev, do you ever see any fucking helical or uh, centrifugals on on the um, on the single units at all? Mm, some like really really small separators, I think, are. Yeah, I mean, so, I hardly ever see separators on single units. This is pretty rare. Like maybe a plasma center or like something like that. Like I mean, I hardly ever see single units with oil separators, unless it's like something really big. Yeah. See, the the problem is with with heel or with uh, centrifugals. Um, you have to you have to run a certain volume. So you know, I know Kev's had calls. I know I have, where you know we have oil failures constantly on the rack, and what happened was it didn't happen until they removed like. You know, they took 40,000 BTUs off and put it on a new rack somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So now you're running 40,000 BTUs less. Now you got five compressors, but only like one and a half are running. Like one is running all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have the other one running on either on a VFD or a digital. And if it's not running a certain amount of discharge CFM, it's not going to separate that fucking oil. So then the oil just basically passes through and goes down the line. And then all of a sudden now you lost all your oil from the rack all the compressors start going off on low oil and then all the oil is out in the fucking system because the separator wasn't doing its job. So the rack was intended for, you know, a certain amount of discharge CFM. If you don't have that discharge CFM, it's going to tell you to go fuck yourself and not separate properly. Yeah. See, th this is the kind of stuff that I am totally unaware of in, in the world that you guys are in. I wouldn't know to, oh, it's got an oil separator. Like, why isn't it separating the oil? I didn't, I wouldn't know that running, at a lower capacity at 1.5 compressors instead of five would cause that. I wouldn't know that. On a centrifugal, yes. On a impingement okay. screen, not so much. Not so okay. much. You, okay. Kev, what, what, some of the things that you've seen with the impingement screen, what are some of the things that cause the failure for that not to separate? I mean, whether the screen blows out, usually like 90% of the time, it's the screen blows out. So there's a, like a, there's like a screen door screen in there and a, and a cone 
it's shaped like a cone and basically what happens if a compressor breaks or pieces of valve plate uh, break off and go through there, it slices through it like a knife. So once it cuts through the screen door, just like a you know dog running through a screen door, I mean, there's a giant hole now and then everything's going through the hole instead of through the screen. So mm-hmm. it causes it to separate. So like 90% of the time when I see that, it's, 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 a, it's a torn screen. Yeah. And how often would that happen? I mean, it depends. I mean, if they have a lot of compressor losses, it's pretty common. But usually, I mean, all those separators are getting ripped out, and they're either putting a a centrifugal or a uh, coalescent style in because they're just so much more efficient. I mean, the the old-style separators are only like 60 to 70% efficient. So, I mean, they they don't do as good a job of separating oil as a uh, coalescent or a uh, helicoil do. Yeah, coalescing. So I like coalescing the best only because, um, you know, basically, you know, if the, if the unit is sized, if the discharge separate, if the separator is sized for 35 discharge CFM, you could run all the way down to two discharge CFM and it would still fucking separate. Okay. But if you have a centrifugal, if you have, you know, size for 35 discharge CFM and you're running, is it 25% less, Kev? Usually like 25% less and after that it barely separates shit. Yeah, but I will say this: if you overload a um, filtered separator, a, a uh, coalescent, it will not separate worth a shit. Yeah, so there's a fine line that you have to play, and unfortunately, like a lot of engineers, like you know, they'll 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 take a rack and they're like, yeah, we can throw another sixty on there, you know, but they won't do anything with the separator or they won't do anything with the condenser. You well, know, most, so. most of the time what I see on startup is it, it's all sized for, you know, max ambient. Well, everything in Chicago is sized for 110 degrees now. Well, we run that like for like five days. <laughs> so you're, you're designing equipment to run at five days of runtime when the, the whole rest of the year is going to see 50 to 70 to 80 degrees. And now we're like way oversized. So, I mean that that's where like all those issues come in i see yeah and like it, it's weird gary because like so there's there is a difference between discharge cfm and suction cfm so when we size when we're programming a controller right to tell you know because we have to tell the controller what size compressor it is because the algorithm basically decides like okay so which compressor you're going to turn on based off how fast the suction pressure came up from set point right so mm-hmm. if it came up super fast i might turn on a 20 horse if it came up a little fast maybe i kick on a 10 horse right um, and then, you know, so that's the suction discharge, uh, suction CFM, but then the, the discharge CFM is, is off a totally different number. So it's actually off of, oh, fuck, now it's going to make me look like an asshole. Cause I can't remember it's there. There's it's, is it the difference, Kev, is it the difference between the suction and the discharge? And there's like some kind of chart that you have to follow to basically follow the discharge CFM. Correct. Okay. And then, I mean, Westermeyer makes that sweet app that does it all for you. Thank you, so Meyer. You just put all your parameters in there, and uh, it'll tell you what your discharge CFM and what your actual suction CFM are based on all your loads and everything in your uh, in your design parameters. And it'll it'll let you pick a what separator it thinks, and it'll give you a list of uh, alternative separators. Yeah. So th- there's a there's actually a part in there that you can actually set it up for like um, refrigeration. 
um, like refrigeration. You're using this separator for refrigeration and yeah. it'll basically give you, um, you know, a, a range of, of, you know, what you want. Cause they, they know you're not going to run full load, full balls to the wall every single freaking time. Right. So they, they're, you know, they're, they're figuring out. That's why like a lot of the remodels of, like that we see, um, Kev, especially cause he does a shit ton of them. Sometimes they'll take uh, a centrifugal separator and they'll downsize it because they know that, uh, you know, basically whip it around that refrigerant at that certain velocity. Like the original line, what you were telling me what the fucking lines were, Kev, what, what were they, what were they well, originally took, and what they teamed it down to a bunch of two and five eighths discharge lines. Anger rack had like four compressors, four big boat anchor. sixties on it. And we changed a bunch of cases out, added some glass doors, took some load off, shifted some load from rack to rack. And then we ended up dropping the oil separator from two and five eighths down to inch and an eighth. Think about it. It's like a, it's like a fucking garden hose, right? And then back up yeah. to two and five eighths going out. To I, the I, I feel like I'm on planet Pluto right now. I honestly, because <laughs> honestly, I, the way you guys are talking, this is not the lingo that I use. Like I've never heard CFM used to talk about um, refrigerant in a pipe. I've never heard that until this conversation. Is that normal in rack refrigeration using CFM? A lot of times, yeah. So really? I mean, a, lot of, a lot of components are sized off CFM. Like when we're like doing control-wise, like we're controlling like the, the capacity of the rack. I mean, you could do horsepower, you could do BTUs, but like more, more than likely the best control you're going to get is using CFM. It's and how do you calculate that? How do you calculate CFM in a discharge line or a suction line? Um, well, I mean, if, if you look at the compressor, like if you look, use like the Copeland mobile app, um, it'll actually tell you what CFM the compressor is. Because the, the, so the, oh, okay. all the controllers that we deal with, they, they, you know, when making their decisions, they deal better with bigger numbers, right? So you could do, oh, it's a fucking 4D, it's a, it's a 20 horsepower, right? Well, if you give it a bigger number, the algorithm actually works a little bit better and controls a little bit better. Um, and then it just makes better decisions based off of, you know, the bigger numbers that it can calculate with. Mm -hmm. So what we're on the, the oil separator thing, what it's been a while since I even looked inside of an oil separator, but there's one that has the, the basically the float inside, right? Well, so I mean, they're all uh, three have a float. So there's all three a, have a float. Okay. All three can have a float. So okay. there's, there's what they call impingement style. And then there's centrifugal which is like a screw and then there's coalescent, which is a, a uh, filter that oh, uh, separates the oil. Now they could all have what they call reservoir. So they, they could all have a reservoir at the bottom and no filter or sorry, no float. And uh, the oil just comes straight out of there and goes to a electronic oil float that on the compressors that feeds in that we would call that a high pressure oil system. Now, Every time you see a float, generally that's a low-pressure oil system, so it's draining that oil into another vessel. So it really it really depends on on what the oil system is, right? So typical oil pots or oil, and I know fucking Jordan Jordan Schimmel is going to make fun of me for saying this, but oil pot, um, oil pot or oil level control, which is usually stuck on the side of the, of the, of the compressor, those are only allowed to have, the Sporlin ones are only allowed to have a 90 pound differential from oil pressure to actual suction pressure, because otherwise it'll, it'll break, it'll end up breaking the damn float. Okay. But a lot of our compressors now have the OMB, the OMC control where they, you know, it's a ported, um, it's a ported oil level control. So basically it, it, it 
you know, meters the amount of, uh, of oil going in there a little bit slower. So there's no mechanical parts to actually break. It's essentially just a fucking solenoid. So it just opens up full bore and it just lets that oil go through. And that's the reason why we need either high pressure systems or, oil pre or low pressure systems. It's, it depends on what the customer wants, right? Yeah. I mean, the, when we say centrifugal, when we say helical, when we say impingement screen, when we say, you know, coalescer, that's just the method that it's using to fucking break the oil away from the refrigerant, right? I, I see. Okay. Got if you that. have a float, now you have to basically lower that pressure, you know, because what, what's going to happen is the oil float's going to level up and there's no reservoir on there. So you need some kind of holding tank. So, you know, somewhere to go there. But there are some separators that are, you know, what we call turbo sheds, which have a reservoir in the fucking separator. So there's no need to have a float. And then at that point, it would just pr typically go discharge pressure right in the compressor and, you know, be modulated by the OMB or the OMC, essentially the electronic control. You've probably seen them in the plasma centers for sure. Um, no, these are these are smaller type machines, man. These were like little condensing units. They, they weren't nothing major. Or, okay. or, or may, maybe maybe on some of the maybe some yeah you, you might be right like just they just almost look like a a, a hermetically sealed canister kind of mm -hmm. yeah okay yeah 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 no for sure and then it has a little a little three eighths line sometimes instead they'll have like a little um a little capillary tube that just turns on all the time. Uh, yeah. like it'll have a solenoid in there and just, and just, you know, puts, yeah. uh, I'm no, I'm, as you're talking, I'm just kind of thinking back to that one I was telling you with the high superheat and it did have a, um, it did something similar to that. And I, I believe it had a solenoid in line with it. Yes. Yeah. So whenever the compressor comes on, it just automatically fucking goes full bore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, interesting. So let, let me ask you this then. If, if if you have a failure with your oil separator and the oil gets logged into the evaps, how are you guys bringing the oil back um, safely back to the to the, the compressor without drying the compressor out or bringing too much back at once? Well, Kev, you want to you want to answer this? How you bring the oil back if the separator is not separating the way it should? Well, you basically the easiest way is to shut the rack down for like a half hour. Just turn all of the compressors off, let everything warm up, let all the valves open up, and just slam it all back on as fast as it can, and let it uh, let all that velocity push all that oil that's in the system back up back up to the uh, the rack, and you just hope nothing explodes. Well, think think about it, Gary. Like if you have if you don't have all that oil sitting down there, right? It's only going to come back with a high velocity, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're everything's a temp. Right, and you just fucking shut it off and turn it back on. You're barely gonna have any velocity come back because the expansion valves are gonna meter, right? But if you turn off the liquid line, pump down the whole system, have it shut down for half an hour to an hour, what's gonna happen? Temperature's gonna raise. So as soon as you open up that liquid line back up, the expansion valves are gonna mo modulate, but they're gonna be fucking wide open because the yeah. it's gonna be high at that point, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's gonna just fucking bring that velocity back up. So that one particular instance where I told you where they they took the forty thousand BTUs off. Um, you know, basically what happened was that the guy would go there. He's like, man, I got three compressors that are down. I got no oil in the fucking separator. These two are basically just about to fucking shut off. What do I do? I was like, shut down the liquid line. I was like, wait for about, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. All the temperatures rise up, turns on the liquid line back up. Now all of a sudden he's like, well, I got oil back. It's coming back. All the compressors are filling up. Holy shit. You know? And then the oil separator, because now instead of running just fucking two compressors, now we run five compressors. So what's going to happen now? The separator is going to do what it's fucking supposed to do, unless it's a different issue, right? That's that's just with a helical. Now, if you have a coalescer, if you have an O-ring that's fucking blown or the coalescing filter is fucking impregnated, 
you're going to have to fix that. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I'm going to give you a way that we use, or this one particular machine that we did something similar with it. This was a 15 ton carrier uh, condensing unit on a roof, five stories above the evaporator. And mm-hmm. we always had a lot of oil return problems with this thing because it had an unloader on it, mechanical unloader. So when it was in the unloaded position, obviously it's not moving as much refrigerant around and bringing the oil back. And we'd have oil failures all the time. And the way we would get it back is obviously we would, we would get it to load up fully and sometimes have to block a portion of the condenser to drive the discharge up just to, to get that refrigerant moving. And then we'd eventually bring the oil back. We had to end up putting an oil separator on that one. Um, and we also had to put a... Um, an accumulator, suction line accumulator, because compressors kept getting banged up. These were 06Ds in there, uh, Carlisle's. They were getting banged up. <laughs> Valves were getting crushed and everything. And this thing was problematic. And the way we fixed it was like oil separator and suction line accumulator. And even still after that, we were getting a lot of shit coming back. And mm-hmm. it, pl- it plugged up the screen and the accumulator. Then we were having oil return issues again because we couldn't get the oil through the the accumulator at the bottom because that screen was plugged up with crap. So the system was dirty as shit. Yeah, yeah. I've only seen one other accumulator plug, and it was on that CO2 rack. uh, (laughs) rack. And let me tell you, that was that was bad. We we were we were logging like twenty to thirty gallons of oil in this accumulator. So. Gary, there's there's a post on 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 the supermarket refrigeration tech talk. There's a page that that I'm an admin on, and and like basically there's a like someone showed a picture of of the um, of the sight glass, and it was mm. fucking green. Yeah. It was green, and someone asked me, they're like, "What do you think's wrong?" I was like, "It so it looks like someone put fucking dye in it." And then the background you could see of the picture the kid took, there was like fucking ten empty cylinders. The kid pulled out. 105 gallons of fucking oil. Those, those were two uh, of my guys. That uh, Was it really? <laughs> those, were, those were two of my guys. They It was an in-house store tech, and uh, they uh, they were having case temp issues, and uh, they were looking uh, looking around, and he threw his gate or a probe on a, a coffin case, and it was squirting out oil <laughs> on the suction, and uh, the, the the call literally said when you go there uh, you're probably gonna have to add three three gallons of oil to the compressor. <laughs> so, That's funny. This guy's been doing it for months. They drained out like I think it was they filled up a fit, two fifty five gallon drums in the bed of a pickup. They were pumping it out with a they were <laughs> draining it into five gallon buckets and then pumping it from there downstairs with a with a like a fly call pump into into fifty five gallon drums in the bed. <laughs> Wow, that's crazy! Draining oil out of this thing. Hold on, I, I have, I have actually, I hold on, I have the pictures. But we we had a, a brand new accumulator. I mean, this was like a eight foot tall accumulator by like two and a half or three foot round. I mean, it, it I think it was like a six hundred pound accumulator, like full wise. We we had one of those. The 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 dip tube plugged up in it, and uh, God, it was. It's still. They still have not fixed it. It, it on two years now. Gary, that looks like fucking dye. Yeah, it was green just because there was too much oil in there. That's all fucking I 
Wow. Hold on, let me let me bring up let me bring up the other picture. Like all uh, the li- all the liquid was saturated with oil, like at, at that store, like like you pop the liquid line and it was just full oil. So you can see, so this is before when they had like when they first went there, right? And this is after removing seventy gallons, so it lightened up a little bit. And he's after running hundred and one fucking gallons. <laughs> Man, it this stuff like ha- like this happens in our trade all the time. I know. You know the the uh, stereotypical old school guy with his hand on the suction line. I've seen units overcharged by like forty, fifty percent because they just keep going back every year and jamming gas in when there's a plugged up filter dryer. Instead of finding the plugged up filter dryer, just jamming gas in it, and the things are going off on high head in the mid and on in heat waves in the summer. Right. I, I know one guy. He was yelling at the apprentices because he didn't. He he says they didn't clean the coils properly. But they were they were spotless. But he was jamming gas in every friggin' spring. Well, look, like here. So this is what Kevin was talking about. So this one, this particular system had a float on here, right? You can yeah. see all the fucking metal all up in here, right? So it blocked the friggin' hole, which didn't allow the oil to go to the compressors. So what does someone do? Jam some more fucking oil in the compressor. That's it. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Um. So yeah. So Crazy. this is. I guess this is the the end result. This is the <laughs> they took out system. I wonder. I'd like to see the uh, the invoice trail for the oil that was purchased <laughs> for this place. Well, yeah. What? So what? Poe oil right now is what? It's a uh, hundred and hundred and forty gallon, hundred and forty dollars per gallon. Is that what it is, Kev? Sixty five. Holy shit! Holy shit! So times that times that by a hundred and one gallons. <laughs> So they spent what fucking what like twelve grand no hundred and six no sixteen grand just on fucking well just to remove it right well, then you got to dispose of it too <laughs> like you're getting rid of a gallon or two it's it's fifty five gallon or that's one hundred ten gallons now so I mean now you got to take it to somewhere that's going to dispose of it you can't burn it like you could mineral oil you can still burn it. No, you burn POE oil. It like it. It's nasty. Well, so if you burn it, you just what you have to do is you actually have to dirty up the flame. So the 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 um the the polyol whatever the hell is in there, it's, it's synthetic, right? So it burns. It actually, if you burn that 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 oil, it's very very light. Um, I used to work. I used to do industrial compressors, Ingersoll Rand, and they used uh, uh you know uh. uh synthetic synthetic oil and so like we had an oil burner in the shop and like i had this like literally dirty up the flame because the flame was so bright and light that the 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 photo saw on the fucking oil burner wouldn't even pick up the flame so the oil fell constantly so i had to kill the fucking kill the air to it to to make it to make it actually work right Hmm. so you got so you're saying back in the day people would take this mineral a bucket of mineral oil and just burn it and get together Really? I used to work with this old guy, like yeah. he he used to do it in his garage all the time. I'm pretty sure he still does it with POE oil, but like it it like obviously it's degassing refrigerant and that's probably yeah. not good. But like yeah. I mean, yeah, let it set for a little bit. Yeah, I mean yeah, a bucket like that is gonna hold on to refrigerant for quite some time, right? Before oh, yeah. it all before yeah, it all boils it. out. I mean he'll sit his he'll he'll burn it in his garage all day long in a, in his like homemade oil burner. Yep. And is that heating his garage? Is he doing something productive yeah. with it or just, oh, yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, he's, he, he's heating his garage with it, so in the wintertime. So and he has a waste oil burner that he, like, modified, and he runs refrigerant oil through it or 
you know, car oil. You know, Kev, you cheap fucker. I'm surprised you don't have an oil burner fucking burn a mineral and fucking POE oil over there. <laughs> My wife would not be, not be okay with that. <laughs> you got insurance just in case. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, interesting topic because uh, I've... I haven't got into oil separators in this depth of a conversation with anybody before. So very cool stuff. Nah, man, it's, you know, it's, it's weird. So like, there's so many aspects to, to refrigeration. Like, you know, it's people most of the time are limited to like, Oh, it's super heat and subcooling. That's it. There's so much more shit that goes into this. You know what I mean? And we haven't, we just scraped the surface of, you know, all the stuff that, that, you know, we deal with on the regular, you know, fucking some of the VFD shit. Now, do you um, think this stuff is like, do you think that things are being over-engineered nowadays? Do you think there's too much going into it and too much things that can break and too many problems that can arise? Cause it's happening on, in the HVAC side too, where it's like, why did they do this much stuff to this machine? Let me put it this way. My washer and dryer are the conventional front load and top load. Yeah. You know, I don't go with the fucking, with the, with the front load, both washed because the more, I, man, you know, I, I get it. Like they're trying to be more energy efficient, but you know, the more, yeah. more electronics is the more stuff can go bad. Right. Mm-hmm. I had a bitch of a time just shopping for a fucking refrigerator. Yeah. I mean, it, it's everything we work on, like all the CO2 stuff, they're pushing it all. Like, I mean, stuff's not where it needs to be yet. It's just overly complicated, too many safeties and, I mean, everything is just like they're, they're they're overly complicating equipment that doesn't need to be overly complicated. Yeah, CO two is one of those things where it's it's you're basically when we hit transcritical mode, you're basically manipulating manipulating the pressures in order to get the refrigerant to do what the fuck you want it to do. Yeah, and that's a whole other conversation. So sorry, but yeah, yeah, yeah that that'll be another can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, I, I mean, I, I see it all all the time on this end uh, of things, uh, commercial, residential, uh, even like the, the heat pumps and, and the ductless. I mean, it's getting very smart. It's getting very efficient. I mean, for the most part, I, I see I see a lot of this ductless and VRF stuff being very reliable. And I I've done a lot of VRF and I've done a lot of ductless through my career, installed it, serviced it. And I've seen it be very reliable on, on that front. Uh, I'm just wondering how it is in, in refrigeration. I know like with, with, with when it comes to blower motors and stuff with undersized um, duct systems that can cause more static with less airflow, we can heat up electronics more like on a, an ECM motor and stuff like that. And we're seeing failures in that way. So I just don't know if you guys are seeing it on your side where things are failing because because of the the electronics involved these days See, we, we have the opposite like we have the ecm motors going and everything but they're submerged in water all the time or they're mm-hmm. they're cold hot cold hot cold every time they go into defrost it's you know 85 90 degrees then right back down to minus 20 you know constantly so i mean the ecm motors they i mean they've gotten a lot better the older ones were horrible and didn't last long the newer ones like i mean a lot of the rescue motors and stuff that those things are bulletproof so the the problem is that you have condensation right if you're going yeah. quickly from a hot to cold you know the dew point changes and then basically yeah. you fucking you have a lot of condensation there yeah. and we deal with that in, in boxes a lot of times because a lot of these you know if you ever went into i don't know what fucking supermarkets you have up in 
can, uh, Canada, but like we, you know, we have you have uh, you know Costco's and BJ's and stuff, and a lot of we, times we got Costco's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they have they, you know, they have a lot of times the coolers that you fucking walk in. Well, those doors have to be set up fucking just perfect because of the way the dew point runs. And, and what essentially happens is, you know, if you take a, a wet bulb calculator, if you're running a saturated of like 18 degrees, right, and your dew point and your your actual relative humidity in the box is like 50 degrees, your dew point is like 27 degrees. Well, if you're operating in an 18 degree saturated coil, that means it's 18 degrees. Well, dew point, right? What's the, de what's the definition of dew point? Dew point is the temperature at which below the temperature will fucking start to condense. So if your coil's at, at 18 and your fucking, your box temp uh, essentially has a dew point of 27, it's gonna, whatever surface that coil is fucking touching is gonna cause to condense, which causes liquid to drip off the bottom of the evaporator, which causes liquid to fucking form on the floor and then people get pissed. Yeah. So there, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know about, about you, but like, I know Kevin and I have real big numbers base, you know, like we, we, you know, we, what did you get for this? What did you get for this calculation? Like we're constantly running shit back and forth with, with each other, just trying to figure out issues. Right. Um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I don't use calculations that much in my line of work. It's because mostly what I see are electrical failures and mm -hmm. not not thing not problems like you're speaking about with condensation coming off of, of apps and stuff like that so but i mean i'm 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 starting to deep dive a little bit more into that stuff into a mm -hmm. little bit more because when you're in school and you sit there in class and they're giving you all these calculations and formulas you're like what am i going to use this in the field like that's the attitude that most kids have and i had it i'm not going to lie i had it and now i'm seeing that the value in knowing that stuff and where and when to use it to to, to find out what the hell is actually going on um, with a problem. You don't need a license to do anything HVAC related. So That's it was, it was weird when I moved to Connecticut, like I had, like I would, like I had been in the field for eight years, but I had to go through an apprenticeship. So I like, I went through one semester of HVAC school and the instructor's like, you got electronics degree, you'll be fucking fine. And then I moved to Connecticut and they're like, you need to go through school. So I literally had to do like an online HVAC school in order to go through an apprenticeship, but I'd been doing it, doing the shit for eight years. And then I came to, to Texas and they were like, Oh, what's your social security number? Here's your fucking card. I'm like, cool. <laughs> yeah. So what's good about that up here is every single province in Canada, as far as I know, has, they have a, a program that you have to go through. I think some even might be four years, but I, here in Ontario, we're five. But one, once you get that, that certificate it's called a red seal and it's transferable between um provinces well that's like how kind of like industrial is like um yeah. uh industrial like if you're working on like ammonia you have to essentially be an operator mm -hmm. so you have to go through the rita classes and stuff like that i know jeremy williams has a really good program that, that he does for you know for his arts his, his industrial program um but yeah, I don't know, man. Every every area is different. It seems like the more unionized areas, you know, require more. Like, so you're talking like big cities. So Chicago, you know, have big unions, big union. Philadelphia or Philadelphia, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Um, you know, Jersey, uh, New York. New York's a big fucking union union state. There are there is a union here in Texas, but it's you know, I, don't know. I haven't touched it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've never been in I've never experienced a union. I've always been non-union, so I can't really speak to what it'd be like to to be in one. I just know it's a touchy subject when a non-union and a union tech get together and start bashing heads over that over that subject. Right? It can get nasty. I've seen it. I I don't understand that. Like, someone, neither do I. Yeah. Someone asked Kevin the when we first started doing the podcast. 
um, the guy's like, well, how do you guys work together? Well, what do you mean? He's like, well, you work for different companies and like Kevin's union and you're not. I'm like, <laughs> That's so fucking funny. what, dude? Pretty open conversation with these guys and it was enjoyable because I learned some stuff about their side of the trade and hopefully they learn some stuff about my side of the trade. That's what these conversations are all about is to level the playing field on education. So one person is not way up there and the other is way down here. We're trying to level the playing field here with these conversations. So everybody's on board and has an idea of what's going on, right? And you can further your, your education on your own later by reading and watching videos and stuff like that. But it all starts somewhere guys. And thank you very much for getting on here and listening to us yammer on about the trade we love. I'm out. Happy HVACing. Hope you enjoyed the show. Follow HVAC Know It All on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, and anywhere else Gary feels like popping up. This has been a Two Smokes and a Coffee production.